that they would see you in us. Father, we thank you and praise you. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you so much for being here this morning. It has been a, a really good weekend. I had the privilege yesterday of performing a wedding ceremony for Justin and Kaylin Land, uh, Randall and Tasha Land's son and now daughter-in-law down in Crockett, Texas. And it was a great experience. Um, there were about 70 people at the service outdoors right next to the lake. But when the service began, everybody on their jet skis and their boats and everybody swimming in the pool and playing on the beach, everybody stopped and about 200 additional people listened in as we proclaimed the gospel through a wedding ceremony. So that was a real blessing. And I also want to just say welcome home. Uh, to our group that went to Savannah and to Charleston. It's good to see y'all back. Uh, I did get reports that um, Charleston will never be the same again based on our FBC group going, but I'm glad you guys are home and we welcome you back. I want to start the message today by telling you a story um, that was offered by Jeff Greenfield. He was a news correspondent for ABC News. He lived in Salisbury, Connecticut. He attended the same Memorial Day observance in his community for over 15 years. And he wrote this article that really grabbed my attention. And I thought it would be a great way for us to begin today. And here's exactly what Jeff Greenfield wrote. He said, at 10 a.m., the parade begins moving down Main Street. It's a small parade, two vintage cars bearing the region's oldest war veterans, the men and women who served in the military, the Salisbury Town Band, the Scouts, the local daycare center, the fire trucks from the volunteer fire departments from all around the county. We fall in line behind the fire trucks and we follow the parade to the cemetery. There's a hymn, there's a prayer, followed by a scout who reads the Gettysburg Address haltingly and shyly. And then come the names of the men who died in all the world wars. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and on and on. A minister recites the 23rd Psalm, a bugler plays taps, the flag is raised from half-staff, and we all walk the few steps back to the village center. It's as artless, as unaffected a ceremony as can be imagined. There are no speechwriters, no advanced men measuring the best angles for TV. There is no TV. And by the end of it, I, along with many other allegedly sophisticated urban types, are all shedding tears. The men whose names have been read indeed gave what Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion. Some in wars whose purpose no one could doubt. Some in wars whose purpose we will never be clear. Some for the folly and arrogance of men in charge when they fell, their deaths were a small part of a bigger story. But every Memorial Day, the lives they, that they, excuse me, but every Memorial Day, the lives they not, never got to live and the people they left behind are the only story that matters. And that is why it matters that their names are uttered aloud before people who never even knew them. And that's why it matters that we were there this year and we will be there next year and then the next and then the next and then the next. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so glad that you're in worship today, and I think it's important that we hear and listen to an article like that because it's crucial that you and I remember at Memorial Day. And I pray that that's your heart this weekend, that we recognize there are people that should get 
our attention every single year. And this morning, we have the chance to do something very interesting, very creative, and very right. Uh, We get to pair together our thoughts of Memorial Day, but also the thoughts of love that we've been in. And I think it is absolutely a perfect blend because it was Jesus who said this in John 15, 13. He said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for their friends. Now, I'm excited today to remember Memorial Day, but I'm also excited to be back in this conversation that we've been having about love. And and as you heard Brother Steve say earlier, if you haven't been with us, we have been in this ongoing discussion of 1 Corinthians 13, and we've been reminded it's the most misused, most misquoted chapter in the entire Bible. Uh, people consistently read it out of context, and thus they, they, they use it at weddings, and they say it's a love poem and all of these ideas. But, but we've been reminded in recent weeks that the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is that the Apostle Paul is our author. The recipients of this New Testament letter are, are Christians living in Corinth, and they're talking about spiritual gifts. If you read back into 1 Corinthians 12 and then proceed into 14, you see the entire context of this discussion in 1 Corinthians 13 is about spiritual gifts. Those are the things that you and I receive when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives and he imbues upon us these spiritual gifts that we're supposed to use in the church. I think it's probably worth asking, do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Well, the first Corinthians were squabbling over the spiritual gifts. They were saying that some gifts are more important than others. They were trying to portray their gift as better than anyone else's. And Paul comes in as a corrective into that discussion. And he says, I want to show you the most excellent way, something that's better than all the spiritual gifts. And that is, let's say it together, it's love, right? So we've been studying love for two weeks, and I'm thankful that we get to do it again today. I want you to take your Bibles in hand with me this morning, and let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, and let's stand together as we read and honor the Word of God today. I'll go back and read the pickup to chapter 13, and then we'll read all the way down through verse 7. And here's what Paul says, And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he gives us the characteristics of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. And then I just want to tag on those first three words of verse number eight. Love never fails. Let's pray together. 
God, today as we study love, as we consider that you are love, it's my prayer and it's our prayer to you today that your spirit would speak to our hearts and that we would mimic you as you are. God, allow agape love to be the center of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, you might remember last week we talked about the fact that the opposite of God's kind of love, and you heard me say that in my prayer, agape love, that's God's kind of love. It's unconditional love. It's love that loves even if no love is coming back. It's the most mature kind of love. And we learned that the opposite of agape love is not hate, but it's self-love. And that's a term that we hear flowing around in our society today that I just need to take a day of of self-love and these type ideas. But last week we contrasted agape love against self-love. And what we learned was this, the first four characteristics of love in Paul's list, we learned that self-love is impatient, but God's love is patient with others. Self-love says, if you hurt me, I'm going to be mean, but agape love is always kind. Self-love is envious of anybody else's success, but agape love is happy when someone else succeeds. And then finally, the fourth thing we learn, self-love struts around and boasts and brags, but agape love is truly humble. So this morning, we've learned those four things, so today we're going to pick it up with four more characteristics of love. So we move forward with number five, and we're going to be in verse number five all morning long. And here's what verse five says, love is not rude. And therefore, here's the point that we learn. Self-love is rude, but agape love is courteous. Now, now you may ask as we kind of begin this discussion today, why is Paul saying this to Corinth? Well, it's a very good question because Paul understood that the church in Corinth was infamous for their poor manners. This was a rude church. How do I know that? Because they would gather for the Lord's Supper and they would start eating it before everybody even got into the room. And it gets worse than that. When they took the Lord's Supper, some of them were getting drunk on the wine of the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine that happening today? Talk about rude. Talk about poor manners. But Paul's telling them that true love, agape love, isn't like that. He's telling them that true love is courteous. Have you ever heard the phrase common courtesy? We use that term, don't we? But but here's my problem with it. I think it's an oxymoron now because it seems that courtesy is not that common anymore. But here's the truth for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Courtesy ought to characterize your life as a follower of Jesus. If you're not courteous, how could people see Jesus Christ in you? You can claim to be as spiritual as you want to be, but if you're rude to people around you, there's not much love in your life. Here's a great story that illustrates it. Several years ago, this famous preacher, and I'm going to actually save his name to save him, right? He he preached this big worship service, 3,000 people in attendance, and he spoke with tremendous power. At the end of the message, the aisles were flooded with people around the front, ready to get their lives right with God. But after the service was over, these volunteers had the chance to take him out for dinner. And when they took him out for dinner, they were appalled at what they watched because he was totally rude to the waitress from start 
to finish. And his rudeness canceled out everything he had said from the pulpit. Now here's what we learn from that. You don't judge people by how well they preach. You don't judge people by how many people walk down the aisle. You judge people by their love for the least of these. Love is courteous. It isn't rude. Uh, There's another story that comes from President Calvin Coolidge. And I'm going to put his picture up here for us today so that you can see what he looked like. He was president in the early 20th century. And, And I love President Coolidge's motto. He said, the government that governs least governs the best. Now, I'll say a big amen to that, right? That's how I feel. But the story I want to tell you from his life is about the night they were having this huge state dinner at the White House. And President Coolidge, as oftentimes happens as the president, he was sitting at the head of the table. And the other dignitaries were lining both sides of the table. And everybody was being super careful. They didn't want to demonstrate poor manners or make some social mistake. You can imagine how you and I would feel if we were there, right? And so they were watching President Coolidge. Everything he did throughout the meal, they mimicked. If he picked up a certain fork, well, they'd pick up a certain fork. Uh, When he picked up a certain dish, they would pick up a certain dish. But to their horror, at the end of the meal, when the coffee was served, Calvin Coolidge, President Coolidge, took his coffee and he pours it into a saucer. It appeared to be very poor manners, right? To their amazement, then he takes some cream and he adds it and stirs it into the saucer. He even put a little sugar in there and and stirred it all around. So guess what the guests did? They took their saucers, put their coffee in the saucer, a little bit of sugar, the whole deal. And then to their surprise, President Coolidge bends down and puts it on the floor for the cat to drink. (laughs) So we all strive to have good manners. At least we should. My question for you today is how many of you had a mama who made sure that you were using good manners. And and if that's you, I'll say yes to that as well. Do you know why she did that? She understood that that's how you show love. Love is courteous, it isn't rude. That's the first thing that we learned today. Love is courteous, it is not rude. Let's move on to the the second characteristic of the morning, number six in our list. Self-love is self-centered, but agape love is unselfish. Go back to verse number 5, and you'll see this in the text. It says, love is not self-seeking. Now, I think the best way to get into this today is to talk about Galileo. We We know the name Galileo from history. And Galileo, if you have forgotten, he invented the telescope so that humans could look out into outer space. But for centuries, you see, our ancestors believed that the earth was the center of the universe. They believed the sun was this little ball in the sky that rotated around planet earth. But over time, we learned that we're just a small part of this universe. Nothing revolves around us except our own little moon, right? We're not even the center of our own solar system. The sun is the center of the solar system, and the planets revolve around it. You say, Pastor, why are you saying all this? Here's the reason. Because many people today live their life like they're the center of the universe. You know anybody like that? Maybe that's you that believes that. Everything revolves around the way that you feel. Everything revolves around the way that you think. Everything revolves around the way that it affects you. 
Uh, but the Bible right here in 1 Corinthians 13 says that is not the way any follower of Jesus should live. I came across this interesting epitaph recently. It's on the tombstone of a man who lived and died in Ireland. He was a selfish, self-centered man. And here's what they put on his tombstone. It says, here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing except gathering wealth. Now where he is and how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. I don't want that on my tombstone, do you? You see, the problem was egocentrism, right? Do you know anybody who's egocentric? How does this help me, and how does this affect me, and how does this make me feel? And it's easy. In our society, we're actually taught to believe that. We're taught to live that way, and it's easy to get in that mindset. Do you know anybody that's wrapped up in themselves? Has it ever happened to you? Let me say this this morning. If you live your whole life wrapped up in yourself, you'll never know what love really is. And I don't think you'll ever know what life really is. There's a great story about this. One day, the chauffeur was driving this limousine beside a cemetery. And there was a minister who actually operated and took care of the ground of the cemetery. And the, the chauffeur drove up and came up to the minister and asked if he would come over to the limousine. And so the minister walks over, and, and when he's walking over, the windows were tinted. He couldn't see in at all. And then the rear window lowers, right? And inside he sees this frail-looking woman, very old, very poor health. And in her eyes, the minister thought he could see hurt and anguish and a wasted life. Well, she introduced herself to the minister and told him that for the last five years she had been sending $10 a month to the cemetery account so flowers could be placed on her husband's grave. And and she kind of did it in a haughty manner as she spoke to the minister. And the minister came back with words that were quite the surprise. Actually, she said this. Let me, let me give you her words. She said, I've come in person today because the doctors have also given me a few weeks, only a few weeks to live. I wanted to see my husband's grave for the last time. And now the minister gives a very surprising response. He said, ma'am, I wish you hadn't been sending money for flowers for your husband's grave. You see, I'm a part of a group of Christians who take flowers to patients in nursing homes and hospitals. And those in the grave, they can't appreciate the flowers that you give. They can't smell the aromas that are given. But patients in the nursing home and in the hospital, they they love getting those flowers, and they actually change their life. Well, the lady didn't say anything. She was somewhat aghast. The minister would say such words to her, and she just motions to the chauffeur, to drive away. Well, several months later, that same limousine pulls up to the cemetery. And this time there was no chauffeur. This time the woman was driving it herself. And this time she wasn't old and frail and anguished looking, but she actually looked healthy and had a glow about her. And the minister said, it looks like she had totally changed. And she rolls down the window, she motions him over, and she says this this time. She said, sir, at first I resented what you said to me that day when I came to visit my husband's grave. But as I thought about it, I decided that you quite possibly were right. So now I take those flowers 
to the hospitals myself. And it does make patients happy. And it makes me happy too. The doctors cannot figure out what made me well. But sir, I know exactly what it was. Now I choose to live for other people. Folks, that's a valuable lesson. And I don't know if I agree with all the details of the story, but that's okay. The lesson is still there for me. That that we can live our lives for ourselves or we can choose to live our lives for other people. Don't spend all your time saying, woe is me, because guess what will happen? You'll just get lower and lower and lower. And when you stop focusing on your own problems and start focusing on other people, it's amazing how much better you feel. Why? Because it's healthy to show love to other people. Somebody say amen to that. Self-love is self-centered, but agape love is unselfish. It's not self-seeking, it's others-seeking, and that's the life that pleases God. Let's move on to the third characteristic of the morning. Self-love has a trigger temper, but agape is slow to anger. Verse number 5 says, love is not easily angered. And the word I think of here is a hair trigger. Have you heard that term? A hair trigger. If you're, a, if you're a gun owner, you know that guns have triggers, and sometimes those triggers can be hard to pull. But a gun that has a hair trigger means that you basically have to just apply, apply a little bit of pressure, and it goes off. Now, guess what? I know people like that. Don't you? Hair trigger. It doesn't take much to set them off at all. They get easily offended. Folks, real love is slow to anger. Here's my questions for us. What's our response time? How how long does it take us to go from zero to 60 in the area of anger? I mean, right? Are you the kind of person that says, I demand my rights, right? Do you explode and then it's over in a moment? Do you say, hey, that's just how I am? I just have to release some steam, and then I'm okay. Let me say this to you. The bombing of Hiroshima was over in just a second, but the fallout lasted years and years. And thus, we learn that anger is dangerous. You say this morning, wait, pastor, Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. Didn't he get angry? Didn't he lose his temper? Well, yes, he got angry, but he was angry at injustice in a place that should have been a house of prayer. But he didn't hurt a single person. When I read the story, he didn't hurt a single person in doing that. He did it out of love for God. And and let me actually go a little bit further. And I I said last week that you stop preaching and you start meddling a little bit. Let me meddle just for a moment. The best testing ground for love versus anger is where? In your own house. Who you are at home is who you really are. Home is the place to practice being slower to become angry. And if you can do that with the people you live with, guess what? You can do it anywhere. The seventh characteristic is is important. Self-love has a trigger temper, but agape love is slow to anger. Let's move to the last one. They don't get any easier. Number eight, self-love keeps a list of wrongs, but agape love forgives 
quickly. Self-love keeps a list of wrongs, but agape love forgives quickly. And here's what I want to say before we start talking about this. This characteristic gets my vote for the best indicator of whether, there's, whether or not there's agape love in your life. This is the biggie, isn't it? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. Here's my hard question. Do you keep a record of wrongs? Do you have a list? I'll never forget what they did to me. I've got it written down right here. Do you have a list? Maybe you heard the story about the kid at school. He was bragging. You probably heard little boys do this over the years. My daddy can whip your daddy. My daddy has a list of all the daddies he can whip, and your daddy's on my daddy's list. Well, some kid went home and told his dad, and the dad didn't like it, so he stomped down the street over to the house, and and he knocked on the door. He was going to talk to the daddy, and this little man opened the door. The big angry dad said, I hear you have a list of all the men in town you can whip, and I'm on your list. Is that right? The little man said, that's right. The angry dad said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, I'm going to take you off my list. (laughs) Folks, we need to take some people off of our list. We need to remove some things from our list. And then let's go all the way. We need to throw the list away. We need to throw the list away. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. 2 Corinthians 5.19, so powerful. The Apostle Paul, again, the same author. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. If you're in banking today, did you hear that accounting term? God was not counting men's sins against them. And here's what that means. Understand it correctly. It means that God does have a list. God does have a list, and he's keeping accurate records of every sin you and I have ever committed. But when we choose Christ as our Savior, when we repent of those sins, he says, now I'm not counting it against you anymore, and he throws the list away. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you grateful that God is not holding our sins against us once we repent and come to Him? And guess what? He expects us to do the same thing. He expects us to show the same level of love towards other people. Let's talk about our homes. How many of you, when you argue, you don't get hysterical, you get historical? You start bringing up all the stuff the past six months that that person has done to you, right? I remember when you did this. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't keep a list. True love forgives quickly. And remember this scripture, love covers a multitude of sins. That's the biggie. Self-love keeps a list of wrongs, but agape love throws it away. I want to close with this story. This little boy goes to this pet shop to pick out a new puppy. And when he found the one he wanted, he pointed him out to the store owner. And the man said to the little boy, son, you don't want that one. That one's born with a birth defect and it's crippled. 
its back legs are, are crooked. It'll never be straight. To tell you the truth, we're going to have to put that little dog to sleep. Surely you don't want a little cripple. And that boy said exuberantly, oh, yes, that's the one I want. Son, you don't want that puppy. And the little boy reached down and he pulled up his pant leg so the man could see the braces on his legs. And he said, mister, I just want to show him what a whole bunch of love can do. That's what this passage is all about. And that's what this short little series is all about. Love can change your life. Love can change your home. Love can change our town. Love can change, yes, the entire world. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor.